You're listening to a lonely gay boy and his co-host discuss horror movies, and not the good ones. A horror enthusiast podcast in which me, a lonely gay boy, and my co-host discuss horror movies, and not the good ones. Thanks for tuning in, new friend. Hi there, dear listener. <coughs> well, we're back for another exciting episode. So very pleased to be here. What name are you going by this week? What do you, what do you mean by what name? Each week, you've been struggling to come up with the right online handle. I have? Oh, sure. That doesn't... No, that, that doesn't sound like me. It's a thing. We could check the tape from last week. Well, no, no, I... I believe you, I, I guess. Great. Then what name are you going to try out this week? Um... Uh, um, uh, Amityville Horror Smith. Really? Well, I panicked. Well, thanks for putting me on the spot. Well, I'll come up with something better next week. I'm sure you will. Before we get into this week's episode, well, I want to thank my neighbor for, for letting us record in his sex dungeon. Uh, we started last week, and I think the audio is a little bit better in here. Yeah. He cleans up so well. I never would have suspected this place had been used. Used and abused uh, regularly. Uh, but yeah, this, this podcast is a work in progress, and I'm doing my best to improve it and make it something special. There are ways, dear listener, you can support the show. Uh, and if I do make, make any sort of money off these endeavors, well, I'll put them back into getting better equipment and and making the show uh, better for you all to enjoy. Not me. My share's going directly into my pocket. Typical. What's that? Oh, sorry. I said, that's typical. Uh, what are you saving up for? Depends. If we barely make anything, then I'll play a round of golf. If we get anything substantial, then I'll use it as seed money to make a cheap horror film. Something with a small cast and limited locations. We'd dedicate time to rehearse and truly polish the script. It would be a character-driven piece. Or I could just slap together some porno flick. That's where the money's at. I was in a pornography film once. It was 1979, and the body hair was untamed. I played Lucian the bellhop, and it was a running gag that I'd keep entering the room right after the sex scenes, and I'd mug to the camera and say, 
I'm going to need a bigger mop. Oh, yeah, that'd be fun. C could I help you make your horror movie? Let's put a pin in that. Yeah, I, I know what that means. How's your week, then? Oh, pretty good. I was thinking about trying stand-up comedy, so I've been writing material. Okay, so, so here's a joke. Uh, the, the setup is, well, I'm not lonely anymore because I started seeing two guys. They're twins. How delightful. No, you're, you're supposed to ask me what their names are so I can deliver the punchline. Well, I'm going to start over. Well, I'm not lonely anymore because I started seeing two guys. They're twins. That makes me want to know the names of these fine fellows. Righty and lefty. Because they're my hands. It's a joke about playing with yourself sexually. Well, I wrote it myself, but the spirit of the joke dates back to well, all masturbation jokes, which started in 1873. That's a fine joke indeed. <laughs> Fuck me sideways. Look, if I record a new sound, will you replace that terrible scream? Not on your life. Okay, listener. Well, that sound means it's time uh, we get to this week's movie. Well, a little background info is needed before we dive into 1964's The Creeping Terror. Well, the story behind the movie is extremely bizarre. Okay, so Arthur Nelson White was a con man who presented himself as A.J. Nelson, movie producer. Well, he tricked a whole lot of people into giving him money so he could produce, direct, and star in The Creeping Terror under the stage name of Vic Savage. I've met some producers. There's a thin line between con man and executive. Oh, sure. Only he was this bisexual street hustler and addict with anger issues who just lied to everyone and, and sold them on this blockbuster movie dream. Well, he spent a lot of time on set high, and, and a lot of the money he, he raised just went up his nose. If I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times. If you can't party responsibly, then you can't party at all. Yeah. Vic Savage completely self-destructed during filming, and he, and he ended up handing over some shoddy version of the movie that didn't even have any sound. The poor producer uh, was forced to hire a radio announcer to narrate the thing, uh, just so it could make some sense and they could release it to try to recuperate some of the money Vic took. Fun fact. This is a perfect example of talented individuals working on shit movies. The credits here were designed by Richard Edlund, who would go on to win multiple Emmys. You know his special effects work on such movies as Star Wars, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Ghostbusters, to name a few. Speaking of the opening credits, let's dive into this monstrosity. The credits appear superimposed over a still picture of wires, 
Uh, it's supposed to be a wire tunnel, perhaps. I'm not entirely sure what I'm seeing, but it is visually interesting. We open on a thrilling, shaky POV shot of someone driving down a road. It's 4 a.m., and newlyweds Martin, played by Vic Savage himself, and Brett are returning to Angel County, California. Even though in real life there is no Angel County, but that's, that's okay. And we learn that Martin's a deputy who works for the sheriff, who just happens to be his Uncle Ben. And if you're in a genre movie and you got an Uncle Ben, you, you know he's going to die pretty soon because great, great power comes great responsibility. And we know all these details because after a few seconds of poorly dubbed dialogue, we get narration spelling everything out. Well, then, then there's a fuzzy shot of some blurry circles, uh, uh, then a rocket. Well, we got to the next day and, and Uncle Ben hears about a crashed UFO. I'm already lost. We, we cut to a shot of the downed spacecraft while smoke obscures it for 21 seconds. That's nearly half a minute of film time where, where literally nothing happens. Yes, but then we get the money shot when the door opens and the monster emerges. And... The monster is surprisingly not the worst aspect of the movie. Well, I'd say it's one of them. Well, I'm, I'm sure it helps that it's in black and white. It, it sort of looks like those horse costumes with one person, you know, the front half, another bent over as the back. Only this has a really, really tall guy in the front, uh, then like three or four shorter guys behind him with the tail. But we don't stay with the monster long, because we, we get back to Martin and Brett and find out they are still driving. <laughs> well, sure. Well, they see Uncle Ben's car, so they join up to help secure the crash site. Well, Uncle Ben's in a hurry, and the music is really pumping, and, and Brett strolls across the screen like it's a lazy Sunday afternoon. It goes to show that these poor, poor actors had zero direction. No one thought to tell Brett, you know, walk a little faster, pretend like you're in a hurry, pretend that this is mildly exciting. Well, we, we cut to the creep shambling through the woods. They're smart enough to have it walk away from the camera and, and obscure it through the trees. So, so that's something. Oh good, then we're treated to more narration telling us exactly what we're seeing. And then they find Jeff's truck, but no Jeff. Who the fuck is Jeff? For, for a movie that's spoon-feeding me all this information, I don't know who Jeff is. <laughs> Well I, well, I get that the narration, you know, has to fill us in on lost dialogue and fine, but, but it's a bit much when it's describing actions that we're watching. We literally see the trio approach the rocket and look at it in amazement, and then the narrator says, 
They looked at the rocket in utter amazement. Just to clear this up for our listeners, to make sure they get a picture of how bad this narration is implemented, we see Uncle Ben say something to Martin, but instead of dubbing in the lines, the narrator says, A puzzled Ben finally asked Martin what he made of the crash. When then we get dubbed lines answering, it's all entirely random. And shit. This trio, which is two, you know, small town cops and, you know, one's wife, well, they assume the crashed rocket isn't American because we don't have anything that big. That's when they find Jeff's hat. And Uncle Ben shouts for Jeff, but by God, there's no response. I'm starting to fear for Jeff. The newlyweds clutch each other as Uncle Ben crawls into the rocket. <laughs> because they, uh, they forgot to put a door in it. So there's just sort of this awkward kind of hole in the ground <laughs> that the actors gotta, gotta crawl through to get in. It, it, it doesn't work. But then we hear Uncle Ben's death cries as something presumably tears him apart off-screen. And, and Martin and Brett sort of half-hustle away to call for help, because of course they don't try to save Uncle Ben. That would be too heroic. It would also possibly make them likable, and <laughs> we can't have likable characters in this movie. Within an hour, Colonel Caldwell shows up with six army soldiers who make a big show of being stopped by a downed tree in the road and, and moving it with military precision. So Caldwell, uh, he sends two men inside the rocket, and this time we follow them and go inside, and we see it's filled with monitors and gizmos and dials and all sorts of 1960s rocket stuff. Oh, and a fucking monster. Because this film can't have just one low-budget, cheap monster. We must have two. Which begs the question of why it's not called the Creeping Terrors. So many questions begged. So few answers. Well, the soldiers, they crawl back out and report that... Monster number two is secured by a metal harness, uh, but it still has a little bit of movement. Well, so Colonel Caldwell decides to set up military base of operations at the sheriff's office. I just feel relieved knowing if an alien rocket were to land in America, that a colonel and six soldiers would show up. Yeah. Well, the next day, Colonel Caldwell sits with Martin, and he tells him they're waiting for a doctor to arrive from some conference in England to take over because he's the world's leading expert in space emissions. During this gripping scene, the narrator tells us Martin's pissed off with the intellectual approach to the crisis when there's a space monster that's killed people. Colonel Caldwell agrees, but... You know, orders are orders. And Martin's made temporary sheriff and has to keep a lid on the news. 
Well, since the public hasn't been warned, we cut to a remote area with a young couple making out on a blanket. Well, and here comes the creep. Indeed, we get a nice clear close-up of the creep coming towards us, and it is something to behold. So the dude uh, is just sort of necking on the girl on the blanket, and she turns and sees the creep, but it's sort of just... She just sort of slowly comes to a look of terror. Uh, then it approaches, and <laughs> the guy takes off running, and the creep eats the girl. It's awful on so many levels. Granted, it doesn't look fantastic, but it's leagues ahead of Bride of the Monster's inert octopus puppet. This at least has a performer covered head to foot and is manipulating a large puppet from inside and the actress is able to thrash around as it devours her. Well, sure, okay, if your bar is, is the monster better than Ed Wood movies? Well, that, that's a pretty, pretty low bar to judge all film. It is what it is. Meanwhile, the military is checking out the crashed rocket, and the monster inside is still struggling. Then Martin tells Barney to have the newspapers write up a story that Uncle Ben and Jeff, because everyone's worried about this Jeff guy, went on a fishing trip to Canada to explain away their absence. Because, you know, that's hot news, if it wasn't a lie. Well, yeah, and, and also this scene introduces us to Barney, who is uh, another cop and Martin's friend. Because uh, apparently the small town had one sheriff and two deputies. And that's it. Not to mention a newspaper that religiously follows the sheriff's department's fishing exploitations. Well, I just have to, have to note here that Martin has a deep v-neck in his civilian clothes uh, and now that he's in his sheriff's uniform he, he still doesn't button it up making him a very casual cool cat type of sheriff well I, I guess the point is well i think martin might be kind of hot but but i could be really wrong it i just don't know during all of this the u.s government is very concerned about covering up the rocket even lying to the press and risking the public's safety. But no one cares that the acting deputy's wife is just chilling with them. Brett's sort of just there. The doctor finally arrives, and they're surprised that he's a young, rugged man. And I'm fucking surprised it's the Marlboro Man. <laughs> Indeed. The space expert here is played by William Thurlby. Best known as the original Marlboro Man. It's also no coincidence that William Thorlby was conned by Vic Savage into producing this movie. So Dr. Marlboro Man lights up as he gets a sit rap from Martin about what's been going on. He's planning on entering the ship once his equipment arrives. But, but don't worry cause he ain't afraid of no alien. If there's something strange in your neighborhood, who you gonna call? The Marlboro Man. 
Well, that sure has a ring to it. We, we cut to Brett doing the dishes, and Martin and Barney slowly sneak into the living room. Well, Barney, he, he awkwardly waits while Martin sneaks into the kitchen and scares Brett. Because, uh, you know, that's, that's what people do when, when other people are dying and there's aliens around. I can't help but compare this to Bride of the Monster, and I'm actually impressed with the set decorating of Martin's house. It looks lived in. It, it looks partied in, because Martin grabs bourbon and 7-Up for him and Barney to enjoy, while the narrator, well, he tells us that there's a subplot that these two are bachelor buddies who are drifting apart now that Martin's married uh, Brett and, and Barney is still dating all the girls in town. The narrator waxes poetical about boys growing up into men while Martin and Brett start making out on the couch and Barney Sheepdog walks away. Does it truly count as a subplot if it is never brought up again? And we only know this because the narrator tells us so? Why, I don't know anymore. So we cut to a, a useless scene of a soldier entering the rocket and, and looking at gizmos and the secured alien. And then the, the next morning, Betty Johnson sees her husband off to work. Well, then she tends to their colicky baby. <laughs> That's right, Betty Johnson's now a character. I, I don't know who she is, or any, any connection, but there's a whole long scene of Betty Johnson's morning routine. I just have to say, we are 26 minutes into this movie, and there's 50 more minutes, and I feel like I've been suffering through this for two hours already. The editing and narration just make it drag on. And on. Yeah, the the overly long takes and, and lack of most of the dialogue really make this a slog. So cut to a shot of the creep, uh, then back to Betty Johnson hanging clothes to dry. And you know what? Uh, we gotta speed things up. The, the creep fucking eats Betty Johnson. There you go. It's no surprise, and she has zero character development. So, so let's just move the fuck on. Thank you. Soldiers patrol around the rocket, while Dr. Marlboro Man checks out dials that have numbers and letters on them, when switches for human hands to operate. So, so this is clearly not an alien vessel, right? Like, that's gonna be some twist, right? Oh no, that would be far too interesting. Meanwhile, a young boy is fishing with his grandpa, but he gets bored and, and he takes a walk because a casual stroll is somehow more exciting. I am in no way fat-shaming Grandpa, but they have put ginormous pants on this portly fellow, so it, it looks as if the pants are eating him, just like the creep ate Betty Johnson. It, it's an unfortunate look. Sort of like Fred Mertz from Old I Love Lucy. So while the grandson chases a salamander, well, Grandpa starts calling out after him in lines that are actually not narrated and, and mostly just dubbed over. 
Uh, Ransom loses the salamander and grabs a stick to play with, and, and he's too young to make a sex joke, so while he ventures deeper into the woods for no apparent reason, Grandpa comes looking for him. The creep goes after Grandpa, scaring him into falling into a stream, and then killing him off-screen. Here's the deal. Action, and in horror movies that's often death scenes, should escalate. We saw a great eating scene with the girl making out with her boyfriend after a picnic, and then the next two kills are off-screen? Oh, no, no, no. Well, I actually kind of like the, the grandpa scene in and of itself. You know, there's, there's no narration. What, what little dialogue there is, you know, isn't as poorly dubbed. And there is some creeping tension in, you know, who the monster is going to get. You know, that said, it's a tad too long, and I have, I have no emotional investment in either character because, you know, they're not previously established. You know, the, the duo could have been related to Brett, and we could have seen, you know, in them one or two quick scenes earlier. You know, you know, that way I'm invested. You know, now I care. You know, now this scene has weight. Uh, but as but as is, it's, it's just all right, I guess. Careful, or you fall down the rabbit hole of theoretically improving this god-awful flick. Dr. Marlborough Man has studied uh, the creature in the rocket, and he, he tells Martin that he's sure it's proof positive that it's all alien, and has no connection to anything human. You know, like like the numbers and, and levers for human hands. The ships seem to have been in suspended animation, so the creatures were probably hungry, and, and he'll keep trying to communicate with the one captive creature. You know, Martin is, is pretty apprehensive hearing about this. Barney calls Martin to let him know Mrs. Brown is called in, and her husband and grandson are missing from their fishing trip. You know, Martin will try to make it, but, uh, but warns Barney not to go near the alien zone. Oh, it's, it's just, it's all so bad, Kevin. It's so, so bad. And that's why we love it. Meanwhile, a soldier had snuck inside the rocket and then sneaks out back again, and it's a couple of shots that are meaningless and, and should have been edited out. I wish I could edit it all out of my memory. Martin decides to check the site out and, and sees all the equipment Dr. Marlboro Man has brought when they talk about trying to communicate with the alien. Well, Dr. Marlboro Man even considers the alien might be created by another life form and as a form of communication, even though they, they haven't been able to figure anything out. Well, he worries the aliens might destroy humanity, but, but Martin seems to be okay with it since the only alien they have is, is trapped by one steel beam. Even Martin, our protagonist, has no proper characterization. One scene he's apprehensive, and the next scene he's cocky. Yeah. Well, meanwhile, there's a church campout or something, and, and some dude's playing the guitar and singing old songs, and, and a couple sneaks off to go fuck around in the woods, and instead of Mrs. Voorhees butchering them, uh, the creep comes out of nowhere while they overact to nothing off screen, and, and in shaky cam POV, it gets closer, and, and I guess eats them off screen. 
The guitarist warns the kids to stay where they are while, while he attacks the creep with his guitar. But, but that is no good, and I, I guess it eats all of them? I guess so. In response to a multiple missing persons report, uh, Martin and Barney find the broken guitar and figure out that all these random missing person reports means there's a second alien on the loose, eating people. There may be no gore, no acting or, or dialogue, but there is a decent body count, even if most of it is off-screen. We cut to the community dance hall and find it in full swing, with the teens are, you know, swinging around and having a grand time. Except for all those who aren't, because they're just sitting there sad and lonely at the dance. The dancing goes on for a long-ass time. Trust me, Elicita, it's pointless and makes your brain seep out through your ears. Soldiers walk around all serious-like while Dr. Marlboro Man plays with dials and, and jots down notes on his clipboard, but it's all meaningless. The carpet monster shimmies along the woods while everyone at the dance is having a grand time. They just sort of cut back and forth between the shambling and the dancing for several minutes. And I, I can't, I have to take a break. I, I need to take a break right now, Kevin, to collect myself. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. Let's, uh, let's take a little ad break. Hi there, listener. It's me, um, Amityville Horror Smith, uh, apparently. Um, I'll, I'll have a better, better name next week. And I just want to take a quick break from the episode, and uh, ain't it a doozy, for an ad, cause cause somebody's got to pay the bills around here. Well, sorry if this takes you out of the episode, but it's a necessary evil, you know? Okay, well here's the ad. Well, sorry. This week is brought to you by rugs. Get yourself a rug if you want to cover some space in your place. You can even take a ratty old rug and, and turn it into a movie monster costume for Halloween. It may be laughable, it may look like shit, uh, b but it'll be a rug all right. Well, okay, the ad's over. I guess that wasn't so bad. Well, before we get back to uh, the episode and find out if co-host will lose his shit again, well, I need to apologize for the audio this week. Well, I, I don't know what happened, but... Uh, the levels are all over the place. I guess it's sort of fitting that we, we cover a movie with audio problems, and, and we have audio problems. I mean, you, you, you really can't complain because it's a free show, am I right? Well, seriously though, it will get better. You know, it's, it's not always easy putting out content. You know, it's a passion, oh sure, but it's, it's, it's mentally taxing. And it takes so, so many hours. So very many hours. But, since I don't have any friends, it means I have the time for you, dear listener. Uh, but if you've been curious about you know, how the show might improve, or, or how you could help out, your co-host convinced me to start a Patreon account. If you'd like to motivate us to 
keep making content and get some behind-the-scenes thoughts and, and shout-outs and episodes, check out https colon backslash backslash www.patreon.com backslash lonely gay boy horror podcast. Well, if we start making a few bucks, it'll also allow us to buy or rent more bad movies, so we'll have a wider range to choose from. Well, okay. Well, thanks for indulging me, listener. It was really cool of you. And now back to the episode. I'm back and ready now. Sorry, I just had you get some air and not think about this shitty movie for a few minutes. It's cool. So, we, we were right at the point um, of the movie where the monster just appears in the corner of the dance. And uh, everybody in the dance hall freaks out. Let's check with Billy from Voodoo Academy for the proper response here. What the fuck's going on here? Thank you, Billy. Well, okay, so this is when the weirdest thing happens. A woman starts to run out the door, but some guy grabs her shoulder and pulls her back in, and this rips her dress, but it doesn't expose her breasts, don't worry. Uh, So some other guy sees it and gets in a brawl with the first guy, while there is an alien monster shaking in the other corner. What? It's because the monster is so damn slow. The dancers have to bottleneck, trying to get out of the one door, even though there is a second door on the other side of the screen. One couple clings to each other pretty far behind the monster, and then there's some random dude who's barely in the shot who is still sitting, and I I think he's eating and just kind of casually turning and watching the monster shimmy after the couple dozen people trying to get out. It is very poorly blocked. I I think that one guy just sort of watching everything might be a crew member, but, but I don't know. So the creep it gets a woman uh, because we see the legs slip inside its mouth. Well, meanwhile, the dancers are congested um, at the door so much that two new guys are fist fighting each other. So the monster gets another woman as the crowd finally gets out, except for the one drunk guy sitting at the bar who continues to drink, uh, then teleports off screen. Uh, and the couple who is clinging to each other, uh, it eats them too. At least the body count keeps rising. Cut to Martin and Brett uh, making out in his car instead of searching for the monster. The colonel calls him to tell him about the dance hall attack, and now they finally have orders to kill the monster. Uh, So, for some reason, he wants Martin to help. Next, the monster goes to Lover's Lane, where a bunch of cars are parked in the thing is so damn slow, how is it traversing the city? This thing's gone through the woods, by the stream, through the dance hall, now it's at Lover's Lane. Movie magic. So it it eats a couple who are macking in the car with the hood down, 
It kind of mounts the back of the car and scoops them up at the same time. When some guy driving along stops and peers at it while he's smoking a pipe. Uh, a second car speeds off, so the monster goes after a third car. And Pipe Dude just sort of watches as the couple runs away instead of driving away. At least the monster finally attacks the fourth car on Lover's Lane. And, and that makes Peepin' Tom Pipe Dude finally <laughs> drive away. The monster rolls the car down an embankment, killing the couple inside, so they're easy snack for it. Well, that kill was actually kind of clever. Indeed. An hour later, the colonel tracks down the monster with his soldiers, but Dr. Marlboro Man argues they should take the monster in alive. Martin, Brett, and Barney arrive, and the colonel says they should hang back as the the second line of defense as his seven soldiers approach the monster. And Barney's smoking. I know it's the early 60s, and people smoked all the time, but like, well, you're not that far away from U.S. soldiers trying to apprehend a killer alien monster, and you might have to spring into action. Maybe you don't casually enjoy a cigarette in that moment. Maybe. While Barney's smoking, the Seven soldiers get real close and shoot it for what feels like a very long time. But it's pretty unfazed, although it might be bleeding sand, I really can't tell. And then it charges at them and knocks them all down. Well, that's when the colonel pulls out a grenade and ignores Dr. Marlboro Man's orders not to use it. Uh, and he trips as he approaches the monster, so he tosses the grenade in its mouth and it, it blows up and uh, covers them in, in sand, I guess. It, it's pretty awkwardly shot. Don't you mean awkwardly blown up? <laughs> <laughs> yeah... Dr. Marlboro Man digs around the monster's corpse, well, then books it to the truck and speeds off. Well, this is the only time in the movie when someone runs. The colonel sends Martin and Brett after him in, in case he needs help, but Barney just sort of sits on the ground with the, the colonel's head in his lap, like soothing him. It, it's weird. Dr. Marlboro Man speeds back to the crash site and goes back inside, and as soon as he touches a dial, there's an explosion. And I am so damn happy we are in the home stretch here. And things are actually happening on the movie. So Dr. Marlboro Man crawls out all bloodied and in bad shape as the trapped monster emerges and kills the soldier guarding the ship. Dr. Marlboro Man struggles against the monster for long enough for Martin to ram it with his cop car. It answers the age-old question of how do you kill a giant alien rug monster that gobbles down people? You run it over with your car. Simple yet effective. Martin and Brett tend to Dr. Marlboro Man, but it's too late. As he lies dying, he tells them he figured out the monsters were mobile laboratories that were consuming people so they could run tests on their chemical compounds to figure out weaknesses in the human species. 
Now that the monsters are dead, the ship's computer will send the info out into outer space to the real aliens who are behind it all. Which is actually a really good twist. I, I have to give it there. It is probably one of the few elements that made it from the original script into the end product. Oh, totally. It, it definitely sort of has that. Uh, Twilight Zone, or Outer Limits, uh, sort of dark, twisting ending um, that I really dig. So Martin crawls inside the ship to stop the transmitter, uh, so he bangs around for close to two solid minutes. Oh, but it's no good. The transmitter sends a signal out to the aliens. Martin tells Dr. Marlboro Man he failed, and and Dr. Marlboro Man tells him only God knows what will happen now, and dies. So Brett cries into Martin's shoulder as we pan up to the sky, ominously. The end. And that is the first time I've enjoyed that scream. Because that sound means the show's over. Actually, it, it means final thoughts. Slash wrap up. Uh, but yeah, glad you're on board, buddy. Well, okay, listener. If you're interested in the wacky behind the scenes making of The Creeping Terror, check out The Creep Behind the Camera, which blends interviews with people associated with the movie and dramatization in a really effective docudrama comedy. It's, it's pretty unique. It's not always entirely factual, and there's some squeamish bits, but it's very entertaining, and there's a good sense of humor about, you know, just how bizarre it all was. And it goes to prove that had Vic Savage not destroyed the movie, it could have been decent. The original script sounds fairly interesting, with some fun concepts and big sci-fi horror moments. If that had been shot... With a moderate budget by a competent filmmaker, it could have been a neat Twilight Zone-like sci-fi monster flick. Too bad. Well, I'm, I'm gonna go out on a limb here and say that I enjoyed this one a little bit more than you did. You know, for me, the, the narration almost works. Back in the day, there were a lot of, like, public health informational movies, like, uh, you know, Your Body Through Puberty, or... Car crashes kill. You know, that were completely narrated. Whose line is it anyway has a game that spoofs these. If it were shot better, it could have almost had a faux documentary feel to it, like the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And that's the thing, Kevin. Just about every individual ingredient in the film could theoretically work if it was completely redone. But as is, nothing works. Well, you, you're right. You, even though you should be calling me a Amityville this week. Not going to happen. Well, that, that's for the best. What are we tackling next week? I'm looking forward to a palate cleanser. Up next is Deathbed, the Bed That Eats. Good God, why have you forsaken me? That's it. I'm choosing some of these movies from now on. Well, that's not really how this works. Creeping terror. 
was mental torture. Well, fine then. You pick the one after Deathbed. Every seventh movie we cover will be your choosing. By my count, that's going to be the sixth one. Unless... Ugh, you're still counting One Missed Call as the first episode, even though we skipped it in a running gag that is more bothersome than funny. You bet your sweet potato I'm counting it. Well, I'll take it then. Seven is better than- Oh, Christ! Now that sound means the show is over. This is, uh, Amityville- Amityville Horror Smith for myself and co-host saying, signing off. Well said. Shut up. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Oh, my God.